And hello, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. And today on the show... What we've got here is failure to replicate. It is said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I don't know if that's really the best definition of insanity, but I do think that the obverse is a good description of scientific inquiry. Doing the same thing over again and expecting the same result. I mean, when you do an experiment, the kind that science is based on, it is a way of checking your ideas against reality. And one thing you expect from reality is consistency. You try something out, you see what happens, you try it out again, and the same thing should happen. And if it doesn't, if you repeat an experiment and the outcome is completely different the second time around, well, that is cause for concern. Well, imagine uh, the level of concern if you were to take a bunch of experiments, not just one, but many, ones that were published in well-known, top-notch scientific journals that had passed muster, had been reviewed and uh, selected for publication, and you carefully ran them over again and found that a large percentage flunked the repeatability test. That is not a hypothetical. That is exactly what happened when a team of scientists... Uh, got together for something they called the Reproducibility Project. Over the last couple of years, they selected 100 published psychological studies, seemingly solid research in really reputable journals, and they attempted to repeat them. And what happened? Well, half or more of the experiments gave results that did not support the original conclusions. In other words, failure to replicate. The uh, Reproducibility Project reported its findings just a couple weeks ago, and they have caused quite a stir. It is just uh, the latest chapter in what has been called a reproducibility crisis, a growing realization that a significant portion of scientific studies may be less reliable than we once thought. And uh, I should say that it goes way beyond the field of psychology. The folks who initiated the Reproducibility Project were psychologists, so they focused on their own field. But there is evidence that reproducibility problems are found throughout the sciences. So, is it a crisis? Is it time to start doubting everything, to question the veracity of science itself? Well, uh, before uh, you get lightheaded or panicky at the thought, uh, I urge you to slow your roll, take a deep breath, and just listen to this interview with Mike Frank, a psychologist at Stanford University and a participant in the Reproducibility Project. He's going to shed some light for us on what the results show and what they mean for our understanding of the scientific process. And uh, we're going to start here with just a few basics on how scientists gauge the reliability of research and decide whether it's good enough to publish in the first place and uh, some of the things that can go wrong along the way. Well, Mike, thanks for uh, joining us today. And to start, I thought I would... um tell you about an experiment I came up with. I'm kind of excited about it. Great. Let's go. I wanted to test the power of positive thinking on um, coin flips. So what I did was I I thought really positively, did my favorite affirmations, and then went at it with a quarter. I flipped it 10 times, and I was wishing for heads. What'd you get? I got six heads, which means I beat the odds, more heads than tails, obviously, Mind over matter, case closed, right? Well, there might be a couple problems with the study. 
Shall we go into them? All right. Pour cold water on my work here. Go ahead. This is the best part of being an academic. <laughs> so uh, when we do an experiment, we're typically trying to get an experiment that uh, meets two criteria. We want it to be reliable, meaning that if it's repeated, you know, the result that we report should come up the same way again. Uh, and we want it to be valid, meaning that if we're trying to sort of do a study about positive thinking, say, this should be relatively representative of other cases of positive thinking and other cases of, uh, say, people doing positive thinking, which means it probably should be generalizable to other individuals and not just you. So um, in both of those criteria, your study has a couple problems. So in, in the case of reliability, you don't have too many observations of this coin. So the probability that you got this result um, based on chance, based on our what we'd call a null hypothesis, that the coin just happened to flip six times out of 10 by chance, uh, that probability is probably pretty decently high. Let me check this out. With the handy Wolfram Alpha coin toss probability calculator, it looks like coming up six out of 10, heads or tails, has about a 30% chance. So yeah, you're right. That could have been random chance. What if I repeated it maybe once or twice? Well, again, we're going to have to ask about uh, about both reliability and validity. So um, if you repeat it a couple times, uh, you're going to get more data on this coin. So you're going to have a better chance of rejecting the hypothesis that the coin is fair. On the other hand, uh, even if you do that, and you know, to be honest, I'm not sure you're going to be able to do that bit, but even if you do, uh, you're still going to have to show me that this has any relationship with, uh, say, you know, the particular behaviors that you are doing, the kind of thinking that you've been you've encouraged yourself to do, uh, and you know, to be honest, you've got a real problem here because you're both the experimenter and the subject, and that introduces a tremendous amount of bias. So I know that you guys in science like to make sure your results are quote unquote statistically significant, that they don't have too great a chance of having occurred just by random luck, just as a fluke. So you have something you call a p-value, which measures just how, how likely it is that it was random luck. And if the p-value of a result is less than 0.05, that is 1 in 20, 5%, you consider it good enough to publish. If the chance that this thing occurred purely by coincidence is less than 1 in 20, then at least you can publish it. So using, again, my Wolfram Alpha calculator here, that tells me that if I had flipped the coin, or let's say an experimental subject who is not me, had flipped the coin 10 times and gotten eight heads, well, that falls below a p-value of 0.05. Sounds better, doesn't it? The technical definition of a p-value is so annoying and so uh, tricky that I, I won't even burden you with it. There are whole papers written about all of the different misconceptions that scientists themselves hold about what these things mean. Basically, when we see p less than 0.05, our minds tend to make this inference, which is that our hypothesis is true and the chance that we're wrong or the chance that the hypothesis isn't true uh, is less than 5%. And that's exactly the opposite of what the p-value is telling us. <laughs> so what is it telling us? Uh, the technical definition is the p-value is the likelihood, which is a technical statistical term, of the data that you observed under the null hypothesis of no difference between the two conditions in your experiment. Uh, and in your case, actually, this is a one-condition experiment, so the null hypothesis is that the coin is fair. 
Uh, so um, there's a statistical computation that gives us that likelihood value for each of those coin flips, and we get the, the sum total likelihood of those data. And if uh, the likelihood under this null model, which says nothing happened, boring, throw it away, then we are licensed to conclude under the classic old statistical paradigm that uh, you know probably something was happening. Now, what was happening is a totally different question. It might be that you know your table was sloped or the coin was unfair for other reasons. So let me see if I can uh, translate what you just said just a tiny bit, and you can tell me whether I've got it right. In my case, the null hypothesis, and you said the coin is fair. You're not really talking about me having a trick coin. You're talking about the fact that there is absolutely nothing acting on the coin, including my positive thinking. In other words, that it is truly just a random coin toss, right? Yes. Okay. So that's the null hypothesis. And the p-value tells me that if that were so, if there was nothing special happening to that coin, including my telekinesis, that here is the probability that you would have gotten that result. So six out of 10, the probability would be about a third, about 30%. um, And that's what the p-value would be. And that's a really high p-value, a really ugly one if I'm a scientist, because that says, geez, dude, you know, you just got lucky. I mean, there's a good chance of it. But if the p-value is down at that uh, sort of classical threshold that's used in a lot of scientific publications of 0.05, which is 1 in 20, that still leaves open the possibility that the null hypothesis, the pure luck, is at work, right? Absolutely. And, you know, um, let me tell you one other thing about p-values that's very upsetting to us these days. Uh, There is a total disconnect between the uh, statistical significance of a result, that is, uh, what that p-value is, and its practical significance. This blew my mind when I first heard it and first worked through the argument. But as the number of coin flips or the number of observations in, in a study gets larger and larger, you are virtually determined to get a p-value less than 0.05. You absolutely have to do that mathematically. And yet, uh, the size of the effect that would cause that p-value to be less than 0.05 gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So you can imagine a scenario where you actually went and flipped that coin a million times, and 500 and I'd say 530 of them were heads. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, maybe we'd be interested in this if we were really excited about telekinesis, <laughs> but that's a tiny difference, and yet it would be statistically significant. Uh, at the same time as, uh, you know, if, if you flipped it 100 times, you know, you'd have to get a much, much larger number of heads. Um, you'd have to have a much, much larger effect size uh, to get the same level of statistical significance. Uh, yeah. And of course, if I flip that coin a lot of times, what I should see, uh, if indeed my magical powers are not having any effect on it, what I should see is results that tend more and more, the more I flip it, more and more toward the, the exact center of 50-50. Exactly. Uh, randomness. So you've made the point that p-values have some problems. They are misinterpreted. Even when they're properly applied, they don't prove that uh, it's not randomness that's at work. And even if they're really low and randomness does not seem to be the answer, they don't prove your hypothesis. Like, let's say I did continue flipping, 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 and I got a consistent result of more heads and tails over and over and over and over again. We still couldn't conclude that my mind over matter hypothesis is true, sadly. 
Um, I wanted to mention something else. I should have told you this in the beginning, but I did that coin flip thing a number of times, and um, I got more tails than heads in a couple cases and got 50-50 in other cases. It didn't always work out the way I expected, but I realized that I wasn't thinking hard enough. I wasn't uh, making the right affirmations. I wasn't making offerings to the right gods of luck. So I did that and finally got the result that I expected, more heads than tails. I didn't tell you about those others because they were failed experiments. Oh, right. So you've now um, made another of our uh, deadly sins of experimental research, which is you uh, ran the experiment a number of times, and then you theorized what we'd call post hoc, after the fact, about uh, why certain cases succeeded and failed. And then you selectively reported the ones that succeeded, but not the ones that failed. So by doing that, what you've done is you've essentially invalidated all of those p-values that you worked so hard to compute. Because actually, uh, if you've got a uh, 1 in 20 chance of getting a positive result, and you do the experiment 20 times, you've got a pretty darn good chance of getting one of those experiments to come up positive. This is what is known officially as uh, publication bias. Publication meaning I only report the good stuff. Or the file drawer problem, meaning I shove the bad results into the file drawer and never talk about them. Exactly. Uh, and this kind of thing is uh, a major problem throughout the sciences. This has always been uh, a real issue because we as researchers are just like you. You know, We believe in our hypotheses and we interpret the data in light of our hypotheses. And when something goes wrong, it's very easy to explain away a failure on the basis of, uh, oh, you know, well, we know we just didn't do it right that time. Now, all the, the mistakes that I, I'm going to put I in quotes because obviously I knew better, but all the mistakes that I've, I've so far told you about are things that were done in good faith. I mean, I thought I didn't do the experiment well enough the first couple times, which is why I threw the results away. I did apply a statistical test, not that first time with the, the, the 6 out of 10, but you know, when I upped the ante to 8 out of 10, I did apply a p-value test, uh, though I obviously didn't really think deeply about what it meant. Um, but these are things that really do happen to good scientists. And we're not even talking about fudging, conscious fudging or fraud, which also does happen, although I think the consensus at this point is it's pretty darn rare. But we're talking about ways that good scientists, well-meaning scientists can go wrong. Well, I really appreciate you making that distinction. And I think it's one that's gotten a little bit uh, blurred or, or left out occasionally in the media discussion of reproducibility more broadly, that what we're not talking about is fraud. Fraud happens, but it is, as you said, quite rare. But the truth is that we can all do better. Everybody falls victim to the same cognitive biases. And we know this as psychologists, right? When you're really excited about a finding, it's very easy to trick yourself. What's that Feynman quote? Uh, you know, you have to uh, avoid tricking yourself and then all else follows. Um, <laughs> And we're also all error-prone. Everyone makes mistakes. We may make mistakes at different frequencies or different levels, but there's no one who doesn't make mistakes. So we all could stand to uh, improve our scientific process and become more aware of the possible reasoning mistakes that we make or the possible statistical errors that we make. And so a lot of the uh, discussion about reproducibility, I think, should be focused on improving our standards rather than thinking about it as uh, fraud or bad eggs or uh, questionable research practices that kind of finger pointing really ignores the fact that we all have a lot to learn and a lot to change. The mistakes that we've just talked about, the ones that are made in good faith, that are honest mistakes, that involve doing science the way uh, a lot of people do it, hoping to find the truth, still can result in studies that 
may be um, maybe not as strong as they think they are, or may you know reach conclusions that we shouldn't uh, credit without a whole lot more uh, scrutiny. And and one thing I, I want to point out, and you can maybe confirm this for me, is you know a single study, no matter how rigorous, no matter how large the sample size, is not proof. Proof is kind of an asymptotic thing. The more you try to repeat something, the more you look at it from different angles, the more you try to lock it into a theory that involves all kinds of checks and balances. The more you do that, the closer you get to something we could call proof. You know, you're doing my work uh, for me here. (laughs) This is really an important point, and it's one that we find very hard to communicate when we're talking about science. So the common practice, say, in medicine or uh, in uh, clinical sciences more broadly, uh, is that you really need to gather the weight of a lot of different pieces of converging evidence uh, with different evidential value. Some of them could be kind of circumstantial, others could be very strong evidence before you adopt any kind of treatment. Uh, You never want to take one study to the bank and say, okay, we should change our clinical practice, start treating patients because of this one thing that we just found out. Instead, what you want to do is get a lot of different pieces of evidence, each of which is going to have some flaws, but together they kind of triangulate uh, or whatever that shape is. It's got a lot more than uh, three angles, uh, three pieces <laughs> to it. Uh, you're going to want to uh, take all that evidence and see if it all points in the same direction, uh, all, all lines up, um, and then start to change your practice. So what do you do when you take a look at the uh, news headlines and you see one that says, A new study shows, followed by um, some aspect of human behavior or human decision-making or human foolishness. Yeah, you know, you you just have to look at these things and and take them with a grain of salt. There's a a colleague of mine in the School of Medicine here, John Ioannidis. He's published this paper that's been hugely influential. Uh, Roughly the title is, uh, More Than Half of All Scientific uh, Findings Are False. And uh, this is a very thought-provoking and uh, upsetting kind of claim to grapple with, right? That how could we have a, uh, a mode of creating knowledge that's supposed to converge on the truth, and yet the majority of the things that are created within that mode uh, are untrue? Um, but, it, you know, it, it turns out that under some very simple statistical assumptions, you can uh, show that it's very likely that most of what we read is uh, not quite right. Well, tell me about those, because I did want to talk about John Ioannidis's, uh famous paper, uh, from, I think, 2005, the one you just uh, named, that got huge attention. I think it's still one of the most cited papers in the history of the publication um, that published it. And the more recent stuff that you've been part of, the Reproducibility Project, sort of backs up what John Ian has claimed. But what were the statistical methods that he and others have used to to, to reach that conclusion? Well, you know, um, really, to to reason about this, you just need to think about uh, a couple of basic ways that research can go wrong, and we've mentioned many of them, uh, right? We could have just pure false negatives or false positives uh, where we see a particular p-value, and that leads us to believe that an effect is unlikely to be uh, due to the null hypothesis, but in fact, we're wrong. We've hit that one in 20 chance. Uh, or, uh, you know, we actually get a p-value above 0.5, 0.05 rather, but um, we then, you know, we then think that the null is in operation, but in fact, we're not licensed in doing that. We actually, you know, the effect really was there. We just couldn't see it. So that's a false negative. 
Uh, so, you know, you can just get those, those basic statistical variations, but then you compound that with things like uh, publication bias, where we inflate our probability of being wrong by suppressing uh, results that we don't like or just, you know, failing to carry them through. Uh, or we uh, engage in um, another what's called questionable research practice. We, uh, we do kind of post hoc tweaking of our analysis to get the result we want. You know, any of these practices um, inflate our probability of making a mistake. Uh, and, you know, it turns out you don't have to inflate that far uh, before you get above half. That's more or less what, what Unidius's uh, study shows. How big a problem is this? It has been called the reproducibility crisis, uh, as people like Johnny Anidis and then you know more and more scientists like yourself have been pointing out that there are problems. Is it a crisis? You know, I think uh, this is a tough question to answer because there's still a ton of scientists going out and doing really good, really solid, really reproducible work and publishing it, and we're learning more and more about human nature uh, through this kind of work. At the same time, we're also seeing that some fields and some subfields uh, show very high degrees of irreproducible findings. So, you know, th that is a wake-up call. Uh, one example that has gotten called a crisis, maybe even more so than psychology, is biomedicine. Uh, there's a study by Amgen that uh, tried to reproduce preclinical findings, uh, so, so uh, important biological findings that the company wanted to turn into drugs. Uh, and they found that they could only reproduce 11% of those findings. Another study by a pharmaceutical company got a slightly higher number, but something like a quarter. These are in sort of FDA trials, things like that? So these are preclinical, so they're not at the FDA stage. Uh, uh -huh. They're at the biomedical research stage that might lead you to develop a drug. Um, and so if you are a corporation trying to develop drugs, you would want to take these, replicate them, and then maybe build them into a treatment or a drug that you could then go to FDA trials with. Aha. Uh -huh. And by the way, just to add to that, there was an article um, published, I forget what year, by a molecular biologist and a couple of economists called The Economics of Reproducibility in Preclinical Research, in which they estimated that $28 billion bucks were spent uh, on preclinical research that turned out not to be reproducible. So that's like wasted money, perhaps? Absolutely. And, you know, uh a point that I think is worth making here is that there has to be some stuff that is wrong. We can't change our threshold and make it so high that nobody can publish anything until they've got money in the bank, until they're absolutely certain. All, all you can try to do is increase the standards enough that more true stuff is slipping into the literature than false stuff. Uh, because there's a cost to not publishing as well, right? If you, if you have a treatment uh, candidate that you think is exciting, you can hold it back and not publish it and not say anything until you've done four more studies. But, uh, you know, that's years that could go by without that treatment being available. So in the biomedical case, there really is a calculus of uh, cost versus benefit. And we have to make our decisions on the basis of how much do we want to privilege reliability and replicability versus how much do we want to slow things down. Now, uh, I think many people would argue, myself included, that we want to go a little bit further towards the replicability side. But this is a tough question, and really it's an ethical question as well. Let's get back to um, the practical measures and the realistic sorts of steps that can be taken a little later. But um, the reason I'm talking to you, Mike, is because you were part of a highly publicized recent study, really the most ambitious attempt yet, I think, to test the reproducibility of 
psychological experiments, published, well-known psychological experiments. Tell me about the Reproducibility Project. Well, the goal of the Reproducibility Project was to try to get an estimate of the overall reproducibility of the psychological literature. And this was critical because, as you said, folks had been talking about a reproducibility crisis, uh, and there had been a lot of worries out there. But uh, nobody really had hard numbers aside from the uh, biomedical studies that I mentioned. So our study was an attempt to quantify the problem, try to understand where the issues were, and then uh, look at how they might be addressed. So the way the study worked was a group of authors, uh, it ended up being a group of 270, uh, selected a sample of 100 psychology papers from three top journals. So it's worth saying at the outset, this isn't all of psychology. This is three journals, which publish primarily social and cognitive psychology. Prestigious journals that are, you know, where everything published in them is refereed, that it's, you know, been put before a, a jury of good scientists who take a look and say yes or no to the articles before they're published? That's right. So these are top journals. These are absolutely the kind of places you'd want to publish uh, and whose reputability uh, assures that interesting findings in them do get picked up by the media. Uh, and for these hundred papers, the authors of the Reproducibility Project selected key findings from each paper in one of the studies. Often these papers had several studies in them. So there was a procedure for choosing uh, a study and a finding. Uh, and then the team that was tasked with replicating a particular paper constructed uh, as closely as they could an exact pre-registered copy of that study, so an exact replication. Uh, and they did this in collaboration with the original authors of the study. So they would write to the original authors and uh, get the materials whenever possible, get advice on how to conduct the study, and then write up all of their procedures and their planned analyses beforehand. That's what I mean by pre-registration. Uh, and then they ran the study and assessed the extent to which their results matched the originals that were reported in the paper. So, a hundred studies from prestigious journals. Your team was one of 270 uh, that took on this this task of reproducing? That's right. I, I was involved in four different replications. Uh, as part of my uh, teaching here at Stanford, I teach a class, which is a laboratory class for graduate students. And so four of the student projects from that class in uh, 2012, winter of 2012, were uh, contributed to the reproducibility project. Now, I imagine you guys went to great lengths, uh, you guys meaning the whole, all the participants in the reproducibility project, to avoid bias on your part. So in picking the studies in the first place, how do you, how do you pick? Do you pick the easiest ones to replicate, the smallest ones, uh, the ones that had the most sensational results? What do you do? You know, uh, this is a critical question, and it, it's one that really affects the interpretation of the project as a whole. So basically, people coordinating the project, the authors and the leadership team soon realized, well, there's no way we're going to reproduce every article from 2008. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Let's start in January. And what they'd do is they'd open up blocks of studies for claiming by the author teams uh, and continue to opening up blocks of studies until uh, the kind of initial um, claiming period was done. So, you know, in, in my case, I can't speak to how everybody else selected studies, but in my case, what, I was trying to teach a course. So what I did was I went through uh, and I chose all of the possible studies that were open at the time uh, that I judged to be feasible for students in my course. Um, and that meant uh, that would rule out a lot of studies. You know, you couldn't do a study with um, amnesic patient, patients uh, with students in a one-quarter course. You couldn't do a study that involved expensive uh, fMRI scanning. Uh, or one that involved testing children. 
so most of what was left over was studies that uh, had used uh, adults, typically undergraduate students, as their population of interest and done simple uh, behavioral experiments, surveys, questionnaires, uh, cognitive psychology type tasks. Is there any worry that the sample you guys picked might be biased in some way? And I don't mean deliberately, but I mean just uh, the, the practicality of picking studies and things like that, that, that in fact the set of 100 wasn't representative of the field of psychology? I, I think it is not representative of the field of psychology. At best, it's representative of a subpopulation of the submissions or the publications in these journals. Um, and that subpopulation is one that includes uh, primarily behavioral studies, meaning no neural measures, and primarily convenience populations like undergraduates. So in the technical sense of representativeness, there's no way that the study is representative of psychology. What it is is it's a better estimate of uh, a subpart of psychology, at least, than we've had before. Mm. I uh, did look over the article in Science Magazine where the results were um, published, and one of the things that struck me immediately is that uh, the naive idea that reproducing uh, an experiment should be pretty straightforward. I mean, the initial publication, the original experiment, includes a description of its methods. So the scientists, the experimenters, you know, say, we recruited 20 undergraduates and we subjected them to these kinds of situations here is how we tested them, here's how we collected the information, and here's how we analyzed it. A recipe, right? Um, and it should be pretty easy to absolutely duplicate that recipe. Uh, maybe not so. Well, just like following any recipe, right, you go into the kitchen, you open up the cookbook, and it says, uh, you know, simmer the um, the stock at, uh, you know, a low flame for 15 minutes. And you say, hey, hold on, I've got an electric oven. So... The details of a recipe are great, but uh, it's not always as trivial to implement uh, those details uh, when you get in a new context, when you're um, working with a new population, um, or even when you're just trying to adapt this to the specifics of exactly how you're going to be administering that study. So there's wiggle room and interpretation involved in simply trying to do something identical to what the original researchers did. And then there's the business of how you figure out whether you replicated or didn't replicate the results, whether, you know, the second time around the experiment, you know, failed or fell short of the original. How do you do that? And, and what are the concerns there? Well, you know, I think this is actually one of the most valuable things about the reproducibility project. So the reproducibility study provoked and continues to provoke so much discussion about what it means to replicate a study, meaning uh, what are our criteria for success or failure of an attempt to reproduce? somebody else's work. Uh, and this discussion has been all over the map. It's ranged from trying to understand our intuitive sense of when a result feels like it's the same, which sometimes varies from what we see in the p-values, uh, all the way to you know, some pretty interesting technical discussion of what statistics or even what statistical paradigm we should be using. So this isn't a simple question, and I, I think the paper makes clear that we thought pretty hard about it and tried to come up with a number of different working definitions, all of which agreed more or less to a certain extent. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that we're going to want to be thinking about as we move forward. I mean, in the simplest case, maybe, uh, there's a problem of whether you say uh, we successfully replicated the results or didn't if you get a weaker effect. So I'll go back to my silly coin toss experiment, you know, and I, let's say I claim that I flipped 100 times and I got 80 heads, which is a very, very low p-value. 
a very unlikely result. Now, if you go to replicate that and you get 60 heads out of 100 as opposed to 80, did you replicate my result? So that's the kind of question that we had to grapple with. Uh, And we used a number of different standards, one of which was, was your result statistically significant and in the same direction? That's a pretty liberal standard in some sense. Um, right, so you didn't get the same measurement value uh, the second time as the first time. In this case, you got 0.8 the first time, and the second, the replication attempt got 0.6. So, uh, as long as that second attempt was statistically significant, we could say, well, you know, you kind of got the same thing. But there's a, you know, there's a reductio ad absurdum that you can do with that kind of case, right? If, what if we did the thought experiment that I was proposing, where we did a million coin flips and we got 500,030? Now, maybe that's statistically significant, uh, or let's choose a number that is, uh, but would you say that I got the same thing with that million coin flip experiment as you got with your 100 coin flip experiment? These are two very different animals, 0.8 and 0.50003. These are, these are just uh, radically different cases, and so you wouldn't want to say that you even saw the same effect as me, even though they were both statistically significant and both in the same direction. So what did you guys end up doing to conclude, and by the way, we've, we've been holding off mentioning the results, but correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, the results were that about 60% failed to replicate. Yeah, so, so whatever way you slice the data, you got somewhere between half to a third of the studies showing the same effect as the original. So that's a pretty low uh, bottom line, pretty low reproducibility uh, rate. The number varies a little bit because you can look at whether the measurements overlapped one another in their confidence intervals, or you can look at uh, statistical significance, um, or you can look at what happens if you pool the two effects together. Um, do you get something that's, that's different than zero? There are a lot of different procedures that you can use here, but all of them gave about the same number. And that number was really a, you know, a cause for worry, cause for concern. And that number was the one uh, I just quoted? Yep, half to a third uh, showing the same effects only half to a third showing the same effects, but in many of those cases, weaker effects than the original, right? That's absolutely right. So the other thing that happened is if we go to this notion of effect size that we're talking about, about practical significance, uh, that was lower in almost every case. The uh, original effect size and the replication effect size were related, but the replications tended to see much smaller effects. Maybe to put this in plainer language, you know, you guys looked at 100 psychological studies published in really good journals, and you tried to repeat them, and it turned out that somewhere between 70 and 50 percent didn't have anything like the same results, and even those that had results that pointed in the same direction didn't point as strongly in that direction in most cases. And you can see that being a clear consequence of uh, what you were talking about earlier, that is publication bias. So say you're doing your experiment uh, on your own positive thinking ability. And let's say for the sake of argument that you really are some kind of telepath and you really could make this coin come up uh, heads more than tails. Uh, But by chance, sometimes this is going to be a stronger effect and sometimes it's going to be a weaker effect. So you do the experiment carefully. You get uh, a positive result. Maybe your positive result is positive, but it's very weak. You get 52% heads. So maybe you decide, well, okay, I don't know if this is publishable. It's okay. Or maybe I'll send it to a lower tier journal. Or by chance, you get 60, 80, 90% heads. Now you say, wow, that's a really striking finding. I'm going to send it to the best in the field. I'm really going to get my finding out there. 
So the journal you choose is contingent on how strong your results are. And even if you've got a true effect, even if you're really looking at something that's actually true, there's chance variation in how good your result is. So the combination of those things means that when you see a finding in a top journal, its magnitude is very likely to be inflated. And that's precisely what we found in the reproducibility project. So even the true findings looked bigger because the experimenters, even though they were studying something true, they also got a little bit lucky. Mm. Now, as we said, John Ioannidis, the epidemiologist at Stanford Medical School who you know brought a lot of attention to this problem, said that he figured more than half of published studies are false. Now, that's a pretty strong claim. That's not saying inflated. He said false. What's the relationship between your latest results in the reproducibility project and that bigger claim? Well, you know, um, when you take a look at this idea of a, a finding being false, um, you know, Yonidas's point in that ar article was that he could use a very simple statistical paradigm that was trying to tell the difference between true and false uh, and show um, in a thought-provoking way that some basic assumptions would allow you to derive that more than half of findings were false. Um, but when it comes down to uh, our real statistical practice and our real scientific practice, I think Yonidas would be the first person to say that it's more complicated than that 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 was just a simple model to get people thinking and get people talking, and it was very successful at that. Uh, in fact, really what we care about is not just uh, truth or falsity, uh, but um, the statistical and practical significance of results and um, you know whether they are robust enough to build upon, whether we can uh, use them to support our theories, use them to support our clinical or our policy practice, and so forth. So it, it's a much, uh, much tougher call to make often what to do with a particular finding uh, depending on its um, statistical and practical significance. What do you think is a, a valid conclusion from the Reproducibility Project results? Well, I think that uh, the findings pretty clearly show uh, that there's a lot that we could do to improve the replicability of our work in psychology, uh, that there are uh, modifications that are to our practice that are desirable and, and probably even necessary so that we can raise those numbers in the future. I want to talk about those remedial steps in just a moment, but just a couple other things first. Um, one reaction to this, uh, the New York Times first uh, published a pretty substantial story about the initial report, and then it published an op-ed in response from a psychologist, uh, professor of psychology at Northeastern University, Lisa Feldman Barrett. I bet you've read this. Psychology is not in crisis. And uh, she wrote, she said, does this mean that the phenomenon in question is necessarily illusory, that is, when it fails to replicate? Absolutely not. If the studies were well-designed and executed, it is more likely that the phenomenon from study A is true only under certain conditions. The scientist's job is now to figure out what those conditions are in order to form new and better hypotheses to test. So technically, what we'd call this is a uh, an explanation of the failure to replicate in terms of some kind of moderator. Um, that is a variable that controls how strong the original effect is. Yes. Um, so uh, the trouble with these sorts of moderator explanations is that they are almost always post hoc. That is, you show me the failed replication, and I'll tell you why it failed. But we never do the same thing when we're talking about a positive study. We never say oh, you show me the positive replication and I'll tell you why it succeeded. And it wasn't just because the effect was true. Uh, so there's an asymmetry here. We tend to explain away failed replications in terms of stuff that 
now after seeing this failure, we know matters to the outcome of the study. So uh, these kinds of moderators are uh, really, you know, they're certainly a theoretical possibility, but there's actually some really exciting empirical evidence on them. So another wing of the uh, reproducibility effort has been a set of studies that are called uh, many labs. And the many lab studies are uh, designed to try to test these sorts of moderator hypotheses in particular. So they take the same exact experiments, and rather than just replicating them once, they replicate them across dozens of different sites. Uh, and they actually measure possible moderators, like what time of year is it, or uh, you know, what's the racial or ethnic composition of the sample, and so forth. They actually try to measure what's going on between sites to try to see if they can explain variation in the effect that they observe based on these sorts of, uh, of moderators. And, you know, um, that's just one set of studies, but they really haven't found as much support for moderation explanations uh, as has been claimed. And by the way, a, a moderator in the case of my coin flipping experiment uh, might be, you know, me coming back at you after you failed to reproduce my results saying, you were thinking affirmatively enough. I did a better job of it. Exactly. So, so there's an infinity of possible things that we can claim went wrong uh, after an experiment is over. Uh, the key test of a good moderator hypothesis is one that makes a prediction about the future. And so if I say, oh, you weren't concentrating hard enough, but here's what we have to do in order to measure whether you were concentrating hard enough, then at least we can go back and redo the experiment and test whether I was right. So I can't wave my hands indefinitely. Exactly. We can't modify the theory every time the data doesn't match up to it or else it's not much of a theory at all. Now, you guys uh, undertook this uh, in your field, psychology. This whole thing was initiated by a psychologist, Brian Nozick of the University of Virginia, who, by the way, was on this show a couple of years ago. Um, people can look for that in our archives. We were talking about unconscious bias, one of his specialties. Um, but does it signal that psychology has special problems? You know, there's going to be variation in uh, reproducibility across fields, but I think it's a real misinterpretation of this result to think that it's specific to psychology because we're psychologists. In fact, I think it speaks to the real strength of psychology as a field, that we could conduct this kind of systematic inquiry into reproducibility. Uh, in fact, you know, the next slated reproducibility project in this series is reproducibility cancer biology. So the next thing down the pipe is uh, a uh, science that is you know, on, on uh, you know, they at least sit over in the school of sciences rather than the school of humanities and social sciences. So I, I you know, I think it's unknown how much this uh, set of issues applies across fields, but you know, across many different, very, very disparate communities, people are starting to think about reproducibility. Just to take a totally different example, folks in computer science are really starting to think about how reproducible their simulation studies are and whether they should be doing more to allow other people to get the same results from their simulations or their algorithms uh, as the original researchers are. So, so this is something that's being thought about throughout the sciences, not just in psychology. I, I think uh, uh, pinning special blame on us because we took the effort to actually make the measurements is really uh, the opposite of what we should be doing. It does strike me, though, that, that psychology and medicine and, and other fields that deal with human beings and social sciences that deal with multiple human beings, you know, are dealing with a, an inherently more difficult field of study uh, than, say, at least some branches of physics. I mean, an electron is an electron is an electron. And when you measure electrons, you can generalize to other electrons, whereas human beings, you know, when you're talking about these subtle 
and sometimes mysterious, you know, psychological effects like priming, where an idea is implanted in people's minds and then it affects their judgment or their their actions. Um, wow, that's pretty hard to do, I would think, and, and especially to generalize given all the special circumstances that might have applied during that one initial test. The other thing that strikes me about the contrast is, of course, in, in physics, for instance, not only is it rigorously quantitative, but you have a model that um, ties together all kinds of phenomena in a really rigid way so that even if you don't replicate one study, a lot of other studies can disprove it or at least point to problems because there's you know kind of a house of cards effect. One thing doesn't work, then you know that other things can't be true. So I, th- I think there's a lot uh, that's true about what you're saying here, um, that quantitative theories of the type that are more common in physics than psychology uh, can really help to constrain uh, our results and can help us figure out when something is um, is going wrong. On the other hand, I really do want to push back against this impression that psychology is somehow kind of um, more error prone. Like if you think of, about the most classic example of irreproducibility that you know came to everybody's mind for many years when you talked about irreproducible science, it was cold, cold fusion. fusion. Yeah, exactly. You you had the same one that that came to mind. <laughs> that wasn't uh, social priming. That that was a uh, hard physics claim that was irreproducible. Uh, or even just in the news um, recently, the um, uh, the bicep study. Um, oh yeah, we did that on this show, as a matter of fact, and I had to walk back. What <laughs> show I did where we talked about how incredible that result was when they found out that um, this idea of uh, you know primordial gravitational waves was just an artifact of cosmic dust. Exactly. So, so you know, I, I think throughout the sciences, we're really having to grapple with the fact that the more careful we are and the more open we are, uh, the more quickly we understand that not everything we do is correct. We're still making gradual progress towards a, a more correct, a, a more general, more explanatory set of theories, but it's far from a linear progression, uh, you know, two steps forward, one and 7.75 steps back or whatever we might say. Well, let's talk about what's to be done. Um, first of all, you know, maybe the the most simple-minded, you know, question would be, why not just lower the p-value, the cutoff for statistical significance so that things have to be even more statistically rigorous before they can be published? And I think you've already answered that because the fact is it's a balancing act. If you lower that cutoff, you're going to miss a lot of correct results. I mean, a lot of valid studies aren't going to get published. Because a, t- a totally valid study might have a somewhat higher p-value. That's what random chance does. Well, I think there is a lot of other stuff that we can do that decreases the possibility of these other biasing factors. Yeah. Uh, rather than changing, per se, the statistical cutoffs. So um, working to uh, decrease publication bias, working to decrease this kind of post hoc questionable research practice, uh, uh, you know, selecting the experiments you report or the uh, analyses you use after you see the data. Um, when we work against these sorts of biasing factors, we can increase the amount we learn from each study, uh, and we don't have to change our thresholds per se. So right now, if I'm a scientist who has a great new hypothesis and I test it out and the experiment's a dud in the sense that it shows nothing, is that publishable? Hey, I had an idea. It was wrong. You know, uh, that's one of the big challenges. Uh, increasingly, there are some outlets where you can publish this kind of, of finding, but uh, that's still tough. It's not maybe as tough as it was even five or ten years ago, uh, but it, it can still be a challenge to publish a null result. 
But there are journals of null results. Well, you know, um, one of the real innovations here has been mega journals like um, PLOS One. Uh, so PLOS One uh, has this in very interesting philosophy. They say, uh, we're not going to reject your paper because we don't think it's important. The only reason we're going to reject your paper is because we don't think it is scientifically sound. So if your null result was conducted uh, appropriately, the standards were high, you did everything you should have done, uh, and you just didn't find the effect, uh, and so it didn't support the hypothesis you went in with, that should be perfectly fine for PLOS and for a number of other journals that have this same no-impact uh, reviewing policy. Are there the same uh, career incentives? Are you going to get as far in the field? Is there going to be a Nobel Prize for someone who spent his or her entire career publishing null results? You know, um, I think we're we're going to have to start uh, altering our career incentives. So it's it's not so much that we want to uh, you know give somebody the Nobel Prize for a null result. <laughs> it's that we along the way to getting that correct theory, that theory that that was more explanatory and that helped us out, uh, they're probably going to have a lot of bad ideas too. Uh, or, or try a lot of studies that weren't designed right, um, and getting those out there in the public domain so that other people can learn from them, build on them, and aggregate them into a broader picture of the literature, that's going to really help us out. So, so it's not that we want to privilege null results over, uh, over positive results. It's that we want to know about them uh, and take them into account, when we, uh, especially when we're uh, evaluating a particular treatment or a particular effect. Yeah, and so we should acknowledge that there's there's real value in null results. In other words, experiments that uh, show absolutely no effect that don't support a hypothesis. If the hypothesis that's being tested is one that uh, is reasonable and is likely to have occurred to a, a number of people and, and might be having some influence on the field. I mean, if someone goes and disproves something that is uh, an important proposal, then that itself is really important work. Obviously, there's less value to publishing no results about hypotheses that nobody cares about and are pretty stupid to begin with, right? Like my power of positive thinking hypothesis. So that, that's a nice distinction to make, uh, that null results matter in fields where we think that the opposite is true. Um, so if you uh, have a lot of money writing on the fact that a particular drug is a good treatment for a particular disease, then uh, my null result on that drug is really very important. Uh, on the other hand, if, if it's a crockpot hypothesis that uh, nobody <laughs> really thought about anyway, then let's let it go. <laughs> yeah. So what's another step that can be taken aside from, from this one, uh, which is really a way of overcoming what we said was the, uh, the publication bias? Well, something that I do in my lab is I really try to think about uh, no individual study being uh, definitive. And so we try to create packages, sets of studies that are cumulative, um, that each build on uh, the other. So um, say we're interested in a particular finding uh, about word learning. So this is what I study in my lab. I'm a developmental psych psychologist, so I look at kids. Um, we will um, find a particular effect uh, and then we'll replicate that effect again uh, with a different group of children, uh, maybe with a different control group that controls against another alternative explanation. Then maybe we'll build on that again. We'll replicate it another time with a slightly younger and a slightly older group again, so you'll see the same effect. Then maybe we'll do a positive control uh, to make sure that we get uh, you know sort of the maximal amount of learning um, and a negative control where we uh, you know where we remove the aspect of the situation that we think provoke learning and make sure that. There is no learning. Uh, so we'll really try to push the effect around and show it in a bunch of different ways with a bunch of different comparisons. 
And by the end of that study set, you know, you might have real criticisms of any one study in the set, but it's often hard to see how uh, the effect would not be true given the evidence from many, many different populations and in, in uh, sort of collected in different ways and with different comparisons. So, so really taking your idea and sort of test driving it in all kinds of conditions. Exactly. So, so, so moving from a model where there's this kind of one single counterintuitive sexy study to one where uh, the model is, you know, you want to get a cumulative study set that really pins the question uh, and really uh, looks at it in a lot of different ways. Keep going. Uh, you have still other ideas. Well, so one one other thing that I'm very evangelical about is um, really uh, thinking about using some of the tools that are developed um, for managing research and managing data and data analysis uh, in computer science uh, and in statistics to try to avoid some of the analytic mistakes that we uh, often fall into. Um, so one kind of innovative thing that statisticians do um, when they know that they have the possibility to tweak their data after, the, you know, they tweak their analysis to fit their data after the fact is they actually hold out some of the data. So they develop their analysis uh, on, say, the first half of the data. And then once they're confident that they've got it right, then they apply it to the second half and try to understand um, how well their analysis does on the, on the second half. So that's known as a, a uh, development set where you develop your hypotheses and a test set where you evaluate them. And that kind of practice can keep you from the sort of uh, inflation of p-values that we see happening uh, you know, in, in uh, psychology. You mentioned earlier something called pre-registration. What is that, and how might that be a good thing? Well, um, when we were having our discussion about biomedical research, you said, uh, you know, is this a problem for FDA trials? And I said, no, no, this is preclinical research. And that's a key distinction because uh, one of the really important things that we do in this country when we do clinical trials is that we register them. Uh, and there's a centralized registry for clinical trials where you have to say what your population is, what you're doing, uh, and what your analyses are, what your, what your measures are. And so by doing that ahead of time, before you do the study, that kind of binds your hands. Uh, and so, first of all, then um, everybody knows that you did the study and can look it up. Uh, and second, you can't come along after the fact and say, oh, well, you know, um, I said I was going to look at, uh, you know, whether they uh, felt better, but I actually just want to look at, you know, um, whether they got fewer headaches or something like that. So, uh, you know, pre-registration commits you to a particular set of hypotheses, so you can't then go around post hoc changing them after you see the data. On the other hand, I imagine you might need to adjust your, your experiment, and, uh, you know, as you find out that there are problems that you never anticipated. So that's kind of tricky, huh? I think this is a very tricky issue, uh, but I think there's a real balance that you can strike. When a study is easy to do and cheap, you can do it again and again, and that's kind of what I'm advocating for in terms of cumulative sets of studies. You just keep doing the same study, kind of iterating until you really understand it and have reproduced the set of findings many times. On the other hand, that's not a luxury that we always have. Sometimes when you're doing a very large-scale study, you're going to have to do it only once, and you really need to make sure that your hands are tied and you can't mess with the data or the analysis plan afterwards. And that's where pre-registration really comes in, because you really have a um, better set of measures that you can then um, uh, be confident in, rather than worrying that you've selected uh, selected your measures post-hoc. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, another step would be to also either require or at least incentivize replicability studies. So every time a, a significant paper is published, uh, somebody hopefully will attempt to replicate it. Is that realistic? Is there any incentive for that right now? I mean, you don't get glory by saying, 
yeah, I checked this guy's experiment and he was right. I mean, it's the, it's the first person on the scene who's going to get fame and prizes and uh, promotions, right? Well, I think there's a real uh, place for replication. And my personal view is that that place is the classroom. So I think that a really important part of training in an experimental science, whatever it is, is replicating other people's work to calibrate yourself and to learn the tools that they used and to be able to build on that work. So uh, this is something that I've advocated for uh, a substantial amount, and it's something that I try to do in my own teaching. Uh, That is, I have students do as their course projects replications of other people's work, and they choose work uh, mostly that's relevant to them, that they want to build off of, that they want to learn from. And so by doing that replication, that really helps them get set up to do their own new work. Uh, and it also helps the field because that uh, you know, provides further evidence for the um, robustness or lack of robustness of another set of findings. So in your class, when uh, a student does attempt to um, replicate a famous study, let's say, and it doesn't work out, they don't get the results, the famous results, do you guys publish? Do you guys get back to the original research? Or what do you do with that? You know, uh, it, it varies pretty widely. So sometimes when you do a replication attempt, uh, you know it didn't work and you have some clues as to why. Um, so you may look at it and you say, oh, you know, this didn't work with my population, but I bet if I tinkered around with it, I could get it to work. Whereas in other cases, you just say, oh, no, this is mysterious. I, I, I really couldn't tell you what went wrong here, whether the original effect was false, whether the original effect uh, was uh, uh, came out of a different method. So the um, the response varies. But I'll, I'll tell you the story of one class project that actually turned into a full-fledged paper. Um, it was actually published in one of these relatively uh, prestigious journals just recently. Uh, so I think this, this story actually illuminates some of the complexity and difficulty of the whole uh, replication issue. Um, but it's a place where uh, a set of student projects actually really, I think, made a difference. So independently, students in my course and students in a course at MIT both decided to replicate the same finding. Um, the finding was a very interesting, thought-provoking study that showed that human adults, this was a study with kids as well, but we didn't look at the kids, uh, that human adults actually seemed like they automatically uh, encoded the beliefs of other people. Just by sort of seeing somebody else watch something, you were kind of keeping track of their beliefs about it. And even when their beliefs were false, you could still kind of track that. So this was a finding that had a lot of implications for the way we think about uh, kind of interpersonal cognition, that it was automatic and quick uh, and was happening kind of uh, subconsciously. And this is called theory of mind, the idea that I have a theory of your mind, Mike. Uh, When I'm watching you, I have an idea of what's motivating you, what's causing you to do what you do, because I can sort of model your interior state. Exactly. Um, So this was an exciting finding that this theory of mind might be more automatic than we'd thought, because other people had kind of proposed that theory of mind was slow and effortful and hard work. And a lot of the time we, you know, don't take other people's perspective into account. We just kind of do our own egocentric thing. So this was a big deal. Uh, And um, when my student and the student at MIT ran these experiments, we both replicated the finding. That is, um, we got significant p-values in the same places that the original authors did. So, you know, this could have been the end of the story. We might have just stopped there. But it turned out that the students were very, very curious about the findings they got, because although they were technically in the same direction as the findings that the original authors observed, um, they had a slightly different interpretation. It didn't seem like the, uh, the new findings made sense under the original author's story. 
And so over the course of uh, a number of uh, months, actually close to a year, and 11 studies, the students worked together to debug the experiment, to figure out what was causing the pattern of findings that they observed. Uh, and it turned out that, you know, we, we believe, and this is what we, the case we made in the paper that we wrote about it, um, that the original findings were caused by a problem in the author's experiment, a problem that we had replicated in our, in our replication study. Oh, wow. So we were seeing the same exact t- pattern of results, but uh, as far as we know, it has nothing to do with the theory of mind of the person doing the experiment. It just had to do with the timing of the responses in the experiment, a kind of technical uh, problem with the um, uh, the experimental uh, parameters. So both groups of students, you said, managed to reproduce the original results, right? Mm-hmm. So what was it that tipped them off that the interpretation of those results, the theory of mind hypothesis, the automatic theory of mind hypothesis, was wrong? Well, uh, so the paradigm relied on the participant to make a judgment about whether a ball was behind a screen. And the key condition was one where the uh, participant himself knew that the ball was behind the screen, but an observer thought it wasn't, or vice versa. There were these kind of key contrasts where there was a mismatch between the beliefs of the two. Uh, And what we found was that those conditions kind of lined up okay, but um, you know the, the case where the um, participant should have been the fastest was when both people thought it was or wasn't behind the screen, where the participants and the observers' beliefs actually matched up. And it, for some weird uh, reason, those were actually both slow. Huh. Um, so they, you know, we got these kind of mismatches in belief, but we then we got this weird effect where you know participants should have been fast in those cases and they weren't. So even though, you know, the kind of key statistical tests held up, the overall pattern of findings wasn't quite right. Hmm. And that tipped us off that there was something else potentially going on, although for a very long time we didn't know what. And what is the the hypothesis your teams came up with? Well, it, it's a very boring uh, hypothesis <laughs> in the end. Uh, it turns out that as part of the procedure, uh, the observer left the room. Uh, you know, so you're watching a video of a guy uh, – actually kind of like a little Lego figure in our studies, um, who in turn watches this ball move behind the screen or not. Um, and at one point, he leaves the room, this little Lego guy, and you have to press a key to note that he left the room. But he leaves the room at different times and different conditions. Uh, and it's that key press that causes you to be a little bit faster or slower when you make a subsequent key press. So it's this very tiny experimental detail. Uh, that was slightly confounded across conditions. That is, uh, they leaving the room uh, varied depending on the belief state of the actor. And so it was just this little itsy-bitsy experimental detail that wasn't quite right, uh, that we had reproduced from the methods never thinking that it wasn't quite right, um, but that eventually turned out to be the culprit for how we got uh, such a different theoretical interpretation, even as we were seeing exactly the same empirical results. Well, this just underlines, I think, the biggest message of all uh, of this entire conversation we've been having. Science is hard. It's full of, uh, you know, deceptive elements that may mislead you in, in various ways. And finding your way through that thicket to something that approximates truth takes a lot of thought, often a lot of uh, uh, a study and a lot of different experiments um, and good theories, too. So if our expectation is uh, two steps forward, one and a half steps back, then I think we uh, will run into far fewer problems when we, uh, when we expect that our science needs to be cumulative, needs to build on itself, um, and that one study can't be 
you know, the answer and, and really probably isn't uh, the thing that you should be reporting on on the front page of the New York Times. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a tough balancing act to try to communicate about science that we're making progress towards the truth. But uh, nevertheless, um, we may be wrong along the way. Well, yeah, and I think you are are right to point to mass media as having a hand in all of this because there's, uh, you know, there's a huge finger on the scale, uh, you know, of science when, as I said before, glory and publicity and fame are bestowed really rapidly on the most sensational findings without waiting for, for the dust to settle, you know. I really doubt that that media will ever change. I mean, it's about shiny objects, but it's screwing things up, I think, for the field. Well, I think uh, when you see a culture where where we grow to expect that there should be uh, dramatic media coverage of every new paper, that changes the incentives for researchers. So part of it is the media, but part of it is the research ecosystem adjusting to that and saying, oh, well, you know, I, I bet to have a job um, or to get, get this promotion, I really should have some findings that are splashy like this and get reported. You start to design studies and think about studies um, as though they should be definitive and should be reported on broadly when really, you know, they might be the first step towards a broader understanding. Um the reproducibility project, uh, the particular meta study that we've been talking about, that is the uh, attempt to replicate 100 uh, psychological experiments, published psychological experiments that found that uh, somewhere between 70 and 50 percent didn't replicate. That's just part of a bigger project called uh, the Open Science Project. Are you part of that, too? Well, this is a, a broad organization. There's both the uh, Open Science Collaboration, which is one name for the uh, author team for uh, the science paper, but there's also the uh, Center for Open Science and a, the general movement that uh, encourages uh, transparency and openness and uh, open standards in science. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that there's any official organization for that, but uh, there's certainly a lot of interest and a lot of momentum. Uh, designed to address some of the problems we've been talking about today. Exactly. Coming out of the belief that the more open and transparent we are about the science that we're doing, uh, the more likely it is that we will create replicable science and the more likely it is that our errors uh, or our mistakes will get caught um, as it comes uh, under the scrutiny of others. Well, it all sounds great and exciting, but is there nervousness among some scientists that, uh, well, you know, some, I guess, have actually said that it gives rise sometimes to like bullying and and shaming. Uh, shaming yeah. You know, I, I think that uh, there are a couple concerns here. One is is always if there's an examination of previous work, uh, that there's the implication that something was done wrong or should have been done better. Uh, and it's hard not to be threatened by that when it's your work that's being examined. Um, in, in truth, it's very tough to change these sorts of standards and to think about how to affect the kind of culture change that we are going to need. Um, but my personal view is that that has to happen through uh, kind of an open discussion and raising of standards together as a field, and that's going to require looking forward rather than looking back. Mm. But I, I also think um, there's a real moral here for folks interested in open science, uh, which is that we really do need to be positive about this uh, because there are so many opportunities for shaming or bullying, or at least the perception of those things, even if the intent is not there, uh, we really have to be uh, especially cautious about our tone and really try to qualify our claims. And that's a challenge for all of us 
uh, in communicating about science, both within the field and externally, is to try to make sure that we are appropriately cautious and uh, try to um, move forward with positive recommendations, um, even as we acknowledge the um, the challenges of, of the past. Well, thanks so much, Mike. It's been a really interesting discussion. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Mike Frank is Assistant Professor of Psychology at Stanford University and a member of the Reproducibility Project. And uh, as often happens in uh, my interviews, time limitations um, caused me to skip a couple of questions that I had wanted to ask. But uh, Mike was kind enough to do a follow-up session with me, and here it is for you online listeners, some extra insights into p-values and such. So, Mike, I was remiss in sort of brushing right past a point you made early in our conversation uh, about something related to p-values that you said was mind-blowing when you first learned about it. And maybe you can explain it again, but we can uh, get a clearer sense of what it is. Sure. So the the result is pretty easy to state mathematically, which is as n, that is the number of observation, goes to infinity. That is, as you get more and more and more data, p that probability of whatever the effect is under the null hypothesis of nothing doing goes to zero, meaning the effect, whatever it is, gets more and more and more significant as you get more observations. So uh, this is the kind of thing that you don't run into a lot when you're running 30 undergraduates in the lab, but when you start to look at huge surveys of nationally representative populations or when you start to look at internet-sized data sets, everything is statistically significant. Uh, And yet, even though everything is statistically significant, uh, maybe nothing is of practical significance. That is, there are these minuscule, tiny effects that are nevertheless P less than 0.05. And you start to think, well, maybe P less than 0.05 isn't really what I was looking for at all. I'm looking for something that's important and meaningful. Uh, And P less than 0.05 was the signal that I was using, and it really wasn't quite the right signal. Yeah, so in the example of my boneheaded coin tossing experiment, if I had thrown the thing a million times and gotten 500,030 heads, as you said, that is barely above 50-50. And yet that single result is so unlikely, right, that, that it has a very low p-value, correct? That's right. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is, though, with your, uh, with your telekinesis example <laughs> or your power of positive thinking, I think we'd still think it was important, even if that effect were extremely tiny, that would still be a big finding because, hey, any telekinesis is, is a big deal. But you know, now think about a study that Facebook does just for, for kicks. Imagine that uh, Facebook says uh, men are more likely than women to do X. And you read that on the headline and you think, wow, that's pretty crazy. But then you actually dig into the study and you realize that, you know, in fact, men are 0.0001% more likely than women to do X. And the reason Facebook can tell you that is because they have millions and millions of men and women to compare. Uh, but in fact, for any individual, that uh, 0.001% just means nothing at all, even if it is uh, technically significant in a, uh, the sense of statistical significance. You just don't care. So boil this down to some practical lesson for us. I mean, uh, we would imagine that having a huge sample size, a large N, would be a great thing. That's what you really want. But you're saying that when you do that, things tend to bubble up that aren't very important, I mean, that are tiny uh, in terms of their real, uh, as you say, practical significance. Absolutely. But the problem isn't with the large sample. Large samples are great. They really uh, give you a lot of power to detect many effects. The problem is with relying on Uh p-values. Aha. 
So uh, fee values, you know, are misinterpreted uh, as being a measure of how important the effect is when uh, you can get statistical significance, quote unquote, for very, very unimportant effects. Exactly. And statisticians have actually been clamoring for years to get us to adopt what they call effect size. That is the relative size of the effect, not its statistical significance or probability under some null hypothesis. There's a great paper by the uh, statistician and psychologist Jacob Cohen called The Earth is Round, P less than 0.05. (laughs) So he's got a great sense of humor, right? He's he's telling us, hey, uh, the last thing you want to know when somebody tells you the Earth is round is whether it's P less than 0.05. You want to know much more important things about this uh, particular scientific finding. So um, what's wrong with that proposal and why hasn't it caught on? Well, uh, I think it's gotten increasing uptake, especially as people have gotten more sophisticated about the issues with reproducibility in the past couple of years. Uh, But, you know, even as scientists, we're still drawn in by the possibility that we could have this mechanistic procedure. You know, you turn the crank and you get your p-value and you know whether your result is, as you said, to begin with, publishable or not. Uh, And coming back to a more sophisticated standard that we need to have some combination of statistical significance, practical significance, theoretical importance, and so forth, um, that's a much harder uh, judgment call to make as a scientist. So really adopting these kinds of proposals will require uh, a whole generation of scientists to be trained in this more careful way of thinking about effects that goes beyond just turning the crank. I'm not holding my breath on that one. Um, but uh, good luck as far as that goes. One other question about p-values. You know, in the deliberately uh, incredibly simple example I gave you of an experiment that involved a uh, a situation where the uh, statistics are extremely well understood, you know, a canonical example, a coin toss, it was very easy to say uh, what the likelihood of a result is under the null hypothesis, that is, if the coin we're not being influenced in any way, that the toss was just random. We all know the odds of coin tossing, so that's why I picked that. But what about studies where the odds of something occurring under, again, the null hypothesis without any particular effect of the thing being tested aren't known in advance? So let's say we're testing a new cancer drug, and uh, you know I try it out on a bunch of uh, subjects, let's say lab rats, just to be safe, and I see that in a certain percentage, their tumors shrink. Now, how do I do a p-test on that one? Well, this is the uh, this is the kind of stuff that we think about a lot when we're cr- trying to consider what an appropriate experimental design is. So, uh, if we had a really strong statistical expectation about cancer outcomes, say, we might be able to just take a single measurement and then decide whether our measurement, you know, our drug uh, intervention, differed from that baseline. But in practice, that essentially never happens. We don't know what the proportion should be in the population, in the particular population we're sampling from and so forth. So we do something uh, a lot more costly, but a lot simpler conceptually, which is we have a control group. And then the statistical test we want to do is just whether the intervention group that got the drug is different from the control group that didn't. The control group that got the placebo. Exactly. So the uh, null hypothesis there is very easy to define. It's the null hypothesis of no difference between groups. Got it. One last uh, point that I didn't make during the interview, but uh, I had read in the article uh, that the reproducibility project um, produced in science was that uh, replication success, the you know success in actually reproducing the results of the original experiment, 
was, quote, better predicted by the strength of the original evidence than by the characteristics of the original and replication teams. Want to uh, explain what that means? Sure. A nice close reading of the article. So I think this is an incredibly important and optimistic finding. One naive thing that somebody might have said about the replication project is, well, uh, sure, some of these replications are going to fail, but they're going to fail because of a lack of expertise on the part of the replicators. That is, uh, these are students, these are second stringers at universities that don't have a lot of citations, they don't have a lot of money, they, uh, the original articles were high profile, they were uh, you know, often written by uh, folks from high prestige institutions, and so it's no surprise that uh, you know, the folks doing the replications can't get the studies to work. Uh, so in order to test that hypothesis, the replication project folks got the citation impact and a couple of other factors on, in terms of experience and prestige for the original teams and the replication teams. Uh, and in the regression analyses that they did to try to predict what, uh, what would replicate and what wouldn't replicate, none of those factors really made any difference. So it wasn't the case that those well-cited senior scientists were succeeding in replicating uh, findings, and it wasn't the case that the folks who were well-cited senior scientists were uh, publishing necessarily more replicable findings. Instead, it was really the findings themselves that told us what would or wouldn't replicate if they were uh, large effect sizes and very statistically significant findings, then they were more likely to be replicated. Uh, and if they were kind of marginal, small effects or uh, less significant findings, then they, uh, they were less likely to replicate. So should I generalize that into a little bit of a rule of thumb when reading scientific results? I should ignore the fact that the researchers work at fancy pants uh, universities like Stanford, for instance, uh, and more about just the, again, the, the size of the effect that they detected? I think that's certainly the, the uh, hope here, is that we can get beyond these superficial markers of prestige like university or like a journal of publication. Uh, and we can really try to quantify the uh, the reliability and the validity of the actual underlying science. And it's going to be a long time before we get there, but many of the uh, moves that are being made towards more open publication, towards blind review, um, and so forth, all, all of these try to de-emphasize these traditional markers of prestige, which, at least in this one study, weren't even proxies for quality and uh, try to take those and decouple them from, uh, from what we really think is, is going on in the science and how, how strong the actual findings are. So that is optimistic if the hope is that uh, ability to do science is equally distributed and available to all of us uh, with the proper training. That's a, nice, that's a nice thing, I guess. That's what you meant, right? That is. That, that's, that's really the hope. Uh, you know, um, there, there's going to be some minimum in terms of training uh, and in terms of resources, and that minimum is lower in some cases than in others. Uh, you don't see me trying to reproduce cancer biology trials in my own lab, which deals with developmental psychology. Uh, but I think that within the group that at least has traditionally done this kind of science, those indicators really didn't seem like they did very much in, in this particular study. And that, that's that's very optimistic, right? It says that uh, somebody from, uh, you know, with the appropriate training from whatever university, from whatever background can really contribute here. They can do a replication, they can do original work, and they can contribute to the broader scientific mission. Great. Well, we'll end on that happy note. Thanks a lot, Mike. Really appreciate the, the makeup session here. Thank you. And again, uh, thanks to Mike Frank for his time. 
Uh, and if I could be permitted to add one more optimistic note before I take my leave, it goes back to something Mike said in our original interview. You really need to make sure that your hands are tied. It reminds me of the Odyssey, where Odysseus had his men lash him to the mast of his ship uh, so that he would not succumb to the siren's call that he knew he would be unable to resist. And so it is with science. Though scientists are human, to err is human, scientists err, they do have the ability to bind themselves to the mast of method and objectivity, despite their own temptations and weaknesses and blind spots. And that is uh, one of the things I take away from this whole conversation about the so-called reproducibility crisis. Far from being a uh, knock against science, it is a case of scientists recognizing their own fallibility and uh, coming up with new controls and safeguards against bias and self-deception. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. Robert Polly here bidding you goodbye. You can always check us out online and listen to past episodes at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or do it using your favorite podcast app. And uh, if you do that, uh, most of those apps have ways of rating the show. It only takes a few seconds to, like, click some stars, write a short review, and I'm told it helps raise uh, our visibility and get us more listeners, something we could certainly use. So uh, please take a moment to do that. Thanks, and I'll be talking to you next week.